Okay, the last time what we saw was the Canaanite kings make alliance. They made an alliance against the children of Israel. And what happens was the Gibeonites, okay, uh, part of that Canaanite system there, they break away from the alliance only to trick the children of Israel into a treaty with them so that they can be spared from being destroyed by the children of Israel because they realize that God is on their side. Tonight we're going to see the ire of the Canaanite kings raised because of the Gibeonites' traitorous actions against the rest of the, you know, the Canaanite uh, city-states. And we also are going to see their alliance, the Canaanite alliance, to destroy the Gibeonites. What we're also going to see is that the children of Israel must keep their word to preserve the life of the Gibeonites that they made the alliance with in the last chapter, even to the point of defending them with their own lives. So again, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10. There's going to be a lot of geography tonight. We have maps in the back on the chair next to the door. The maps are going to help you with the geography. And let's begin. Verse 1, Joshua chapter 10. It says, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty, Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, And the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So, again, we hear Jerusalem, okay, but at the time, at this time, there's... The, in Canaan, okay, that's going to be the land of Israel, you have what's, what they consider city-states. They have these walled cities, and each king is the kind of king. It's like a state and a city and a wall, and then you have uh, some, some area of land, and then you have another one. But what they do is they, they try to gather together to take the children of Israel because, you know, word travels fast. So what happens is the Canaanite kings aren't very happy with the Gibeonites because they're supposed to be on their side. So the Canaanite kings decide to make an example of the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites realize that they're in trouble. They're, they're used to be compatriots, you know, they're partners in crimes. Now they're all coming together to attack Gibeon. So Gibeon responds by putting up what I call the bat signal. <laughs> they put up the bat signal and say, hey, Joshua, children of Israel, we're in trouble. These guys are coming after us. I like verse 6 because the, Gibeonans, the Gibeonites say to the children of Israel, almost like, hey, remember us, your new, humble, loyal servants. We could use your help right about now. So you see the Gibeonites take advantage of their new positions. After, again, the last chapter, they made this false treaty with them. Uh, they made a treaty by deception. 
the children of Israel and Joshua say, "Okay, you know, we'll accept you. And then they find out that they were part of the people in Canaan and they feel they realize they were taken. But they, they give their word and they keep their word. So a few things to take from this. Number one, you see evil turns on itself. You see that a lot in the Bible. Um, well, here the Canaanites turn against the Gibeonites, and they're supposed to be together. We see other battles with Israel where the, uh, the and of course we know God at some point in some battles caused a state of confusion among the enemies, but you do see the enemies turning on each other. So you see a lot of times evil turning against each other. And you know what's funny? You could even see it today. Uh, it's funny, I, I look at it even in politics. There's a political party that, uh, that takes over, and then you let time pass, and they're not a party anymore. Individuals kind of break ranks, and they want the limelight, and they, they turn on each other. You know, it happens with the Republicans and the Democrats. Now the Democrats are, you know, vying for position, and you see this thing with Hillary and Obama. So you see, when people get into these positions, they start to turn on themselves. You know, they start to devour each other, and it's motivated, really, by power. We also see... In, in scripture in the future, in Revelation, that the false trinity starts to devour itself. You, you have, you know, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Then you have, in, in Revelation, you have the dragon, uh, the, the Antichrist, who's also known as the beast, and the false prophet. And then you see how they turn on the, on the false prophet. So evil does devour itself. And unfortunately, sadly, even among Christendom, the sinful nature of man, it comes out. Gossip, backstabbing, a lot of it happens among believers, and it's due to sinful motives. But what's amazing is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always have singleness of mind. You see that all throughout Scripture. There's no deviation. Verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came up upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horam that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the children of Israel killed with the sword. So what you see is Joshua comes to rescue the Gibeonites. A little geography, and if you... As I'm talking, maybe take your maps out because there's a lot of places here. There's Makeda, there's all kinds of places, and the maps kind of help out a little bit. But what happens is the troops ascend from Gilgal, okay? If you look just, if you just, actually it's not reflected here, but just west of the Jordan River and a little bit north of that, the bottom portion, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, uh, just around the area of Jericho East, is Gilgal. And what happens, they march all the way to Gibeon. Uh, actually, my map does a better job of showing this. It's actually 17 miles due west. Okay, Gibeon is 17 miles due west, and it's on an uphill. 
So the troops march about 17 miles west from Gilgal to Gibeon, and it's on an incline. But they're victorious. God honors their decision to help the Gibeonites. God honors their decision to keep their word, and then some. And it's the same way with us. God honors us when we keep our word. James says it. Jesus says it. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. If you give your word, keep your word. In verse 11, what's amazing is that the hailstones killed more of the enemy than the sword of the children of Israel. Now, what I believe is that I think it's because, and this is why I give a little bit of the background, 17 miles due west on on an incline. So these guys marched all night. Probably they got word and they didn't dilly-dally. They just said, we got to go help them. We gave our word. So they go all through the evening. They march 17 miles on an incline and then (laughs) they've got to go into battle. So this is this is a tough undertaking for these guys. But what I see here is that God knew these guys were going to be exhausted. But so, you know, there's a little divine intervention here interjected into this. And I could also see God doing this for us. If he really wants you to do something and you're exhausted, but he really wants you to do something and you're obedient, God will give you the lift you need. And he'll often pull us through in the 11th hour. I was home today. I have an ear infection and a throat infection, and my voice was starting to go. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm saying, oh, I really want to do this study. Yes, I really enjoy this. But I'm like, I'm just exhausted. I'm going to try to do the phone chain and call it off. And then I'm thinking about the study. And I'm thinking, well, this is what I'm doing tonight. So I just said, you know what, Lord, I prayed. I'm like, you got to give me this. You got to give me the hailstones. You got to give me something here because I'm, I'm whooped. And he pulled me through. Dave said on Sunday, he goes, I like the expression he used, he goes, oftentimes when you're at your wit's end is when God comes through for you. But he wants to see our obedience. He wants to see us, you know, we we have a responsibility, the obedience and the walking in faith, and he pulls us through. So he, and this he does to often uh, show his glory. God is always right on time. Verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought fought for Israel. Apparently, we don't have a book of Jasher. At least the last time I checked, I haven't seen a book of Jasher. But, check it out. Um, Colossians 4.16 speaks about the Laodicean letter. Paul said, take this Laodicean letter, this is kind of interesting, and continue to circulate it through the churches. Some speculate that there was a Laodicean letter that is lost. I don't see a Laodicean letter in the scripture. Um, some speculate that First and Second Corinthians, that there actually might have been a Third Corinthians, the way it was written. There was one in there that it didn't make it. Now, that's not something for us to panic about. The book of Jasher, I don't know where the book of Jasher is. Um, but God gives us what we need. The, what we have here, sacred scripture, is what God 
needed to get to us. They all could have been lost. Think about it. These texts are old stuff, uh, but it's been consistent. There's thousands of texts that meet each other that were written in different languages. And again, I just that's just me. I like to go into the nuts and bolts of stuff. I could have just ignored the book of Jasher, but I wanted to cover it. So, again, some of these books could have gotten lost, destroyed. However, what God wanted us to have, we have. Okay, you can, you can have confidence in that. The one expression says that the sun hastened to go down. Now, don't hang on every word because it's, that was often the sun going down is a colloquialism for that culture. We have the same colloquialism. In the age of satellite technologies and pictures of the earth, we still talk about the sun coming up and the sun going down. But we know that the sun doesn't go up and down, the earth rotates, and it gives the appearance of the sun going up and coming down because we're earth-centered and we're often self-centered, so it's easy to look at everything else as revolving around us, right? But there's a few possibilities here um, with the sun going down and this long day of Joshua. And again, I, I like the nuts and bolts and the science portion, so I'm going to go into it a little bit. few things. This could have been the whole thing with the sun staying in the, the sky and not going down. It could have been an outright miracle, or it could have been divine foreknowledge of astronomical events. And let me explain that. The first uh, instance could be an outright miracle. God is in the miracle business, Okay. We know that the earth rotates at about a thousand miles an hour. Isn't it amazing that you don't feel it? Remember that song, I feel the earth move under my feet. <laughs> we don't feel the earth move under our feet. Why? I don't know. God's designed this and I'm really going off on a tangent, but I, I like this stuff. The, is it the, <laughs> the middle ear? It's the middle ear that has the, um, the cochlea and the semicircular canals and all that stuff. And it's a built-in gyroscope in our heads. And when we get an ear infection and that kind of makes us feel dizzy, the eyes take over and the sense of feel takes over. But normally we should fall down. Every time we get up, we should fall down because our bodies really, without those, we really shouldn't be balanced. But God designed us to be balanced. God designed us to be on an earth that spins at a 1,000 miles an hour. And God designs us to be on a planet that not only does it spin, but it hurtles through the atmosphere around the sun a lot faster. But we don't feel it. So, the long day of Joshua, getting back to that. The earth rotates at a 1,000 miles an hour. However, God could have slowed down the earth, not like put the brakes on, and we all would have definitely flown forwards, at a thousand miles an hour, you come to a, a stop and everything flies, just like in a car accident. But that's not what he could have done. He could have just slowed the rotation, slowed it, slowed it, slowed it, so that the sun stayed in that position, or we stayed in that position, okay, um, making the day longer. Second thing, it could have been divine foreknowledge. Now, let me follow this here. Some different scientists have not only theorized, but looked at astronomy, and uh, actually some books were written on this, postulated that uh, around the time of Joshua's conquest, in the long day of Joshua, uh, one person wrote that Venus actually had a close call with the Earth, and another person wrote a paper on the possibility of Mars having a close call with the Earth, which explains a lot of the pagans' worship of Mars and the red planet because it came so close at one time, it looked really big in the sky bigger than we see the sun. So a lot of the paganism, because they feared things that they didn't understand, they actually worshipped Mars. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? To me it is anyway. I'm sorry if you're not fascinated. 
so what, and again, follow this. If Mars or Venus came close to the Earth at some point in history, it would have caused a gravitational pull. In physics, gravitational pull between planets is based on mass of an object and distance close to the object. So if you have another planet that has a close call with Earth, it would have definitely pulled on it because that's a massive object. The moon is a lot smaller than the Earth, so the moon rotates around the Earth. We're the boss here. But a big planet coming close would have pulled on the Earth and possibly wobbled it out of its axis and made the 23 degrees on the other side, which would have appeared to be the sun standing in the sky for a longer time from our perspective on the planet. Am I, am I you with me? Good, good, good. All right. Cool stuff. Again, to me, it's cool. <laughs> um, another theory is combined with this could have been refraction of light. Um, it's a possibility. Space debris, water it causes a, a diffraction. I'm sorry, a refraction of the sun's rays between the sun and the earth. I don't, I don't, I don't really like that theory too much. But again, that's another possibility. Um, different historians over the years have recorded, recorded long evenings in the Americas, the Incas. There's actually recorded history of one day in history where the night was just so long that they, it was unusual. So, I mean, it, the stuff starts to come together, you, you know. And again, it could have been very simple. God just said, <laughs> everything stands still. Okay, everything move again. Because God does miracles, all right? So, let's, let's move on to the next point. Okay, 14b. Um, it says that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, the most important thing is he heeded the voice of a man. Now, let's, let's break that up a little bit. I think what Joshua is saying is he wasn't commanding God to do anything. I think what Joshua was saying here was, my God is a big God. My God can do anything. When I was a kid... When you're like seven, eight, nine years old and you're in the neighborhood playing with other kids, kids brag about their daddies. I mean, us poor, you know, our poor fathers, because you know, one kid would say, my dad could beat up your dad. Oh, yeah, my dad could beat up your dad and your dad. Dads are at home getting involved in a fist fight and they don't even realize it. But little kids are like that. My dad could build a house by himself. Well, my dad built the Empire State Building and they just do that. Little kids think their daddies can do anything. And to me, I'm looking at this as Joshua has that childlike faith in his daddy. And his daddy is the king of the universe. And anything that um, he asks of his dad, his dad will do because he knows he's, God is happy. It warms his heart when, when, when people put their faith in him. Lloyd, uh, Pastor Lloyd told us a, a true account of a historical event where I think it was Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. Uh, it, my memory is sketchy, but somebody uh, came to the treasury and they had a note from Alexander the Great and took out this incredible sum of money. And what it was, was, I should have researched it a little bit more, I'm just going by memory. But what happened was the treasurer came to Alexander the Great and said, that's an incredible amount of money. How, are you sure? Did you approve this? He goes, yeah. He goes, he thought enough of me that I could, I could be generous enough and afford to give this amount of money. And again, I forget what it was, but it was a historical account that Alexander the Great was so impressed by this man's faith in him that he actually granted this request. And again, that's just a human, but our God, the moral of the story is your daddy in heaven is big and powerful and he can do anything. 
you brag about him and the things he can do for you, and it's yours for the asking. I think a lot of problem in our, in our lives and a lot of problem in modern Christianity is uh, that we've relied so much on our technology, whether it's in the biomedical field, whether it's electronics, whether it's whatever it is, we, transportation, we rely so much in man and what he can do. And people say, well, where's God in the United States? How come you don't see the miracles that you see on the missions field? I think it's because whether we realize it or not, we trust in the things that we can do. And God is, you know, he's just like, I don't see the childlike faith that I saw with some of these guys. But anyway, God heeded the voice of a man. Again, God's heart was so warmed by uh, Joshua's faith in him. And again, that should transfer over to us as Christians. Verse 15. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear ranks and do not allow them to enter their cities. For the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. So, again, the, the Gilgal thing comes up a lot. Gilgal seems to be like a headquarters or a command post. You see a lot of times between these, these, these attacks, the children of Israel staging their warfare. They would go back to Gilgal. Um, they would plan their attacks from there. In verse 18 and 19, you see Joshua use strategy again. He ties up the kings for now because it's more expedient to decimate the troops. They got the kings cornered. They, you know, they, they trap them. They hold them off for a while. There's only so much you can do with the troop strength. Let's go get rid of these fleeing, you know, get rid of them, decimate them, and then come back for the kings. So that was his strategy. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanged on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded that they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. So Joshua took out the enemy as much as possible, but you see some escaped to fortified cities. Then Joshua had the stone rolled away from the caves to deal with the five kings. Now we see something else happening here. Joshua, and again, you know, feel free to look at the maps and, you know, it's a little confusing. There's so many cities that are mentioned, but I'm going to kind of explain in a nutshell the grouping of those cities, okay, when I get to that point in the scripture. 
So Joshua has his captains of his men of war put their feet on the necks of the king. And you've heard this. This was There was a lot of customs in those days. There was a lot of procedures, protocol, military protocol. And what they did was, before they would kill the uh, commanders of the opposing, the enemy's armies or the kings of, of the enemy's troops, they would do things that were symbolic. They would actually hold the person down, the king down, and they would have put their feet on his neck, symbolizing domination, control, and then they would kill him. Uh, and of course, word got out, and no doubt it was a morale issue uh, to to the troops. If they, in Baghdad, took our generals and, and it got around that they took all of our generals and, and slaughtered them or beheaded them, that would have a huge demoralizing effect on our troops. So that's what you kind of see going on here, all right? Now, as the supreme commander of the Israeli troops, why doesn't Joshua do it himself? My opinion, my humble opinion, Joshua was an extraordinary man. He was an extraordinary leader. And he also was a type of Christ, as you could see as you go through this story. I believe he already walked in those promises that God gave him. What I believe is why he had his, his commanders uh, of his troops do it was because he wanted to make sure that these commanding men under him had the same faith and the confidence in the Lord. He wanted them to realize what he had realized, so he allowed them to put their feet on their necks. But again, Joshua was a type of Christ. Um, and a lot of people take too much into the typology and make everything a type of Christ. But if you look at Joshua's life, he definitely was you know, he, he fit some of those parallels. Uh, he, securing the subjugation Jesus did of the sin on the cross, and now you can walk in it. Jesus did the same thing. He took uh, sin and he destroyed it. He put his feet on the neck of sin, and he shows us how we can walk in that victorious life over sin because he did it first. Uh, hanged on the trees, the, ki- the kings hanged on trees. Uh, sin is where it belongs is hung on a tree. Jesus did the same thing at the cross. He hung that sin on a tree. He took it upon himself, though, which is something that none, no human could do. But you can see some parallels here. Verse 28. On that day, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did it to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. Now, you're going to see a delineation here is what I was talking about before. Sometimes it's good when you when you look at this, you, you read the chapter, it's just, there's a lot of words, a lot of cities, and it becomes a big blur. But as you start to study it, take your pen and, you know, put a, a sticky pad, put a line, start marking out things that you can break it down in your mind and digest those pieces of scripture. What you see is there's a delineation between the central campaign ending with the five Amorite kings, okay? That's what we covered before. There's... As I go through the next scriptures, you're going to see a, a different campaign. As we read on, we're going to go now into the southern campaign. Okay? Um, if you have a study Bible, the map that you have doesn't really show the arrows and all, but if you have a study Bible, 
Um, usually in the back you'll see a colored map, there may be arrows, and it may actually group the cities of Joshua's different campaigns. He started with a central campaign, he moves now into the southern campaign, and in the next chapter, 11, we're going to see him go into the northern campaign. It's going to be more ob- obvious because those cities are more separated from the mishmash kind of that we're reading here, all right? But as you study it, you'll start to break it down. One thing I want to read which I found fascinating is Haley's. I'm going to quote from Haley's, page 163. It's just amazing how archaeology totally lines up with Scripture. And I, I read this, and I was like, i got to read this. This is just amazing. Um, page 163, it says this. Okay, archaeological notes. They've done some digs. Lachish, Debir are named among cities destroyed. Lachish. The Welcome, W-E-L-L-C-O-M-E, not... Welcome, it's nice to see you. But the Welcome Archaeological Expedition in 1931 found there a great layer of ashes coinciding with Joshua's time. Debir, uh, here the joint expedition of Xenia Seminary and the American School of Jerusalem, 1926 through 1928, found a deep layer of ashes, charcoal and lime, with indications of a terrible fire and cultural marks of Joshua's time. Everything under it, Canaanite, everything above it, Israelite. Isn't that amazing? So archaeology, every, every day somebody's out in the Mideast digging something up, and they find something new to support the scripture. There's actually a whole periodical called, and I read it sometimes, Biblical Archaeology, and it supports what the scripture is saying here. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Okay. <clears throat> So we're going to go now on to verse 32. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, all its cities, and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it. And Joshua took it and its king and all its cities and struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining." As he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he had also done to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south, and the low land and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So they go back to Gilgal again. 
So what you see is Joshua's on a roll here. He's victorious over all these city-states, one after another. They fall like dominoes, lined up contiguously to each other. When one falls, they all fall in succession. Now, in verse 42, it's worth repeating. It says, all these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. We tend to focus on Joshua. As a matter of fact, many a Jewish boy from then on was named Joshua. It was a very common name, and they named it after this military hero. And I, I can go, I'm going to go into the scripture on the next one about how old he was, but they figure he's about, he's not a young guy. He's about 80, 85 years old at this time. And uh, I'll, I don't have it in, in front of me, but I'm going to go into the scripture next time that proves that his age while he's going through these conquests. Uh, so, but this guy is, is, he has such an impression on the people that, again, it's a common name. By Jesus' time, many people were named Joshua. As a matter of fact, Jesus comes from jo- the, the Joshua in the Hebrew, or, or Yeshua. But let's, let's take all that and look at this guy for the man he was. But understand this, and I know you all understand this, but the only reason why he was able to accomplish such things was the second part of that verse. Because the Lord God of Israel. Because the Lord God. That was the reason. And again, even the, even the difference we see with King Saul as we go further into Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. You see King Saul, when God was with him in the beginning, he did well. But when the Spirit left him and Saul totally changed. He became like a lunatic. <laughs> he was jealous of a little shepherd boy. I mean, he just did some crazy things, conjuring up Samuel through a medium. I mean, he just did bizarre things. He went out of his mind. And you just see the night and day difference between when the Lord was with him and when the Lord wasn't with him. And that's something that should come back to us, never getting ahead of God and never bragging about our accomplishments. We should always catch ourselves. I think of King Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) All it took was that one thing for him to look at what he had done in in Babylon and, and he knew better. And he said, look at all that I've created in Babylon. Boom. He, he, he was on all fours and his nails grew and his beard grew. And he's like an animal eating grass out in there. Like people, what happened to the king? What's he doing out in the grass? So, you know, God humbled him. But never forget that the only way we can do all things is through Christ who strengthens us. Philippians 4.13. I want to read one more thing before I close up. Another, again, another interesting thing in, in archaeology. This, I don't normally quote from this book, but I just found a lot of interesting things archaeological-wise, and I think you'll find the same. It says, uh, the Amarna letters, A-M-A-R-N-A, written to Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV, urging help from Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was the name for the king or the leader of Egypt. So these guys, Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV, if you're familiar with Egyptian history, these guys actually existed, uh, indicate that at the time, Palestine was being lost to the Habiri, in quotes. Here are some excerpts. And again, they believe that the Habiri are from the Hebrews. And as you start listening to the letter, an ancient document found unearthed, you'll start to see the similarities. The Habiri are capturing our fortresses. They are taking our cities. They are destroying our rulers. They are plundering all the country of the king. May the king send soldiers quickly. If no troops come this year, the whole country is lost to the king. 
because at the time, the king of Egypt, at that particular time of Joshua, had some sort of an influence. Okay, The Habiri are taken by many scholars to mean Hebrews, and accordingly, that these letters contain a Canaanite description of Joshua's conquest of Canaan. Those scholars who hold to the later date for the Exodus think that the Habiri may have been an earlier invasion or emigration. Okay, so what you find out is that you have this Canaanite letter that came to to the king of of uh, of, of Egypt. It was it was dug up later, and it's it's described in a way that hey, these guys are destroying our whole land. If you don't send troops over from Egypt, we're done. It's over, and it it did become over. So the last chapter in closing, make they made a big mistake in the last chapter uh, with not checking with God. And they were deceived. Again, the, the Gibeonites came, they deceived them, they, they put on different uh, attire, and they made them think that they weren't from Canaan. So the children of Israel didn't check with God. Maybe they were in a hurry. I don't know what the reason was, but it kind of came around to bite them because they did something they shouldn't have done. All right. Uh, so they, they make this pact with the Gibeonites. Now the damage is done. But they tried to at least make it better by keeping their word afterwards. They, they, they made an oath, and normally their oath was in the name of their God, and um, they, they, they had to keep their word now. Now, you can question this and say, well, you know, they made a bad decision, and there was ramifications. Yes, there was. But they also, I'm sure they prayed about it, and they tried to do better, and they tried to make it right from that point by keeping their word. Now, why do I say that I believe God honored it and he was in it? Because of the hailstones. I think that's proof. These guys marched 17 miles um, all the way to help the Gibeonites, and probably without the hailstones, they, these guys would have been fatigued, and without divine intervention, it might not have gone well. And God did humble them before, and he could have done it at that time, but he chose to make them victorious. So I believe that God honored them for keeping their word, for, according to the scripture. If you think about it, all the events in the central and southern campaigns that we read about worked out perfectly because Joshua did keep his word, and he made that decision to the, to the Gibeonites. Looking at us, I think that there's huge implications for us, keeping our word. I'll do it. I'll be there. You can count on me. Uh, even funny is punctuality. <laughs> if the children of Israel weren't punctual... They would have got there and the Gibeonites might be gone. And they could say, hey, we came to help you out. Yeah, but there's nobody left. So sometimes punctuality is an issue. Funny thing in my own life, uh, I, I got a new sergeant sometime back. And uh, this guy was really a stickler for time. He wrote me up for being a minute late. <laughs> and the guys are outraged. Oh, that's terrible, you know. But I was a minute late. And you know what? Ever since then, I haven't been a minute late to briefing. And I used to have a, an issue with coming a minute, a few minutes, five minutes, but I'm not late to briefing anymore. And you know what? I don't think he would write me up again for being a minute late, but I learned punctuality there. So, you know, I think you could take a lot from this. Um, I think one time uh, I was late to an event or something, and I said, better late than never. And the person responded back, sometimes it's better never than late. So... Be careful when you give your word. Be careful when you say, I'll be there, I'll help, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you certainly don't want to get a reputation. Thank God the children of Israel kept their word. They were punctual and they honored God and God honored them. Let's pray.